Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. From the time I was three months old until I was nearly 15, my father photographed me every afternoon at precisely three o'clock. When I was an infant, my cousin Corelia held me up for the camera. In later years, I walked on my own to my father's portrait studio, tossed my cap onto the hat rack, shook hands with customers, and waited for my father. In school, I was known as a strange fellow, daydreaming and bookish, terrible at throwing balls, overly theatrical. But in my father's studio, I was part of a grand scientific experiment. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Ron Nyren. In his debut novel, The Book of Lost Light, Nyren explores love, family, time, Finnish mythology, and the early years of photography. During the years before, during, and after the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, Arthur focuses on his obsessions while his son Joseph, who tells the story from his own perspective, is raised by a young Canadian cousin. Corelia, the cousin who sometimes gives him the love and attention he craves. She also gives Joseph the books that ignite his imagination. Hi, Ron. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Gilead. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you come to write this beautiful novel? This novel really accrued over time. started before I thought of writing a novel. When I first moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1991, uh, a few weeks after I arrived, I walked out of my apartment in the flats of the East Bay and looked up to the sky and saw smoke rising from the hills of Berkeley and Oakland. And that was the firestorm of 1991, which burned um, many houses, uh, killed more than a couple dozen people, and uh, just was a, a nightmare. And reading about that as it unfolded, I had come from Connecticut, grown up in Connecticut, where the worst disaster we had was blizzard, hurricane, but nothing like this. And it left a strong impression on me. People who lost lives, lost their homes, their possessions. Uh, that stuck with me. And a few years later, I came across the work of Edward Mybridge, which I'm sure I had seen as a child, his photographs of animals and people in motion, capturing them at various stages of action, which had never been captured with a camera before. He, uh, this was in the 1870s. And his photographs have just become this treasure of for artists and for, for people understanding the emotion of the human body and of, of animals. Uh, mm-hmm. I was a photo of a boxer caught in action. And that intrigued me too. And a little later, I wrote a short short about a man who is photographed every day of his life. And I thought, well, that's an interesting concept, but I don't know where it's going. 
And it wasn't until these elements started to come together, I thought, well, what if this were taking place in uh, the early days of photography? What if my photographer were a protege of Edward Mybridge, trying to do something as pioneering as he is, but over time, photographing in the development of a person over uh, every day for many years? And um, such a project of trying to capture time would, uh, it, it would make sense that the San Francisco earthquake, this great devastating force of 1906, would come in. And how would all of these elements interact? And that really ignited the story for me. And did you have a personal interest in photography? I have not been a big photographer. Now now everyone is a photographer with, with the advent of smartphones, so I take a lot. In those days, I wasn't a big photographer. I had had the chance to be in a dark room in my uh, early teens. And that was just a fascinating experience to watch images that I had made appear uh, in in the darkness of that little room in the baths that you put them in. So I had a fascination with it that I had never really had a chance to put into action. And so writing about it was my way of of becoming a photographer or imagining myself a photographer and, uh, and investigating that, that fascination with keeping things uh, from vanishing from memory. Mm-hmm. Why did you call it the Book of Lost Light, which is a great title, rather than the Book of Lost Time or the Book of Lost Photographs? That's a great question. It went through many titles. It, the working title was Boy Made of Light because Joseph is photographed from his infancy onward by his father. And that becomes such a part of his identity is this second self that's that exists in the photographs. And that didn't quite seem to have a poetic ring to it. And it ended up uh, thinking about Lost Light as a title. And then Book of Lost Light, there is a, a portfolio that Joseph's father, Arthur, assembles uh, of, of the, all the photographs of Joseph's life. And, uh, and that plays a role and ends up playing a role in the plot. So I thought Book of Lost Light, uh, Book of Lost Time was great too, but it was a little too close to In Search of Lost Time. And I didn't mm-hmm. want people to be thinking, oh, uh, Proust is involved here, because although Proust was one of my inspirations, uh, certainly not playing a role in the book. Right. Corellia, Arthur, Arthur's niece, comes to California at age 12 to look after baby Joseph, whose mother has died in childbirth. What did you love about her character? I, when I started researching this book, I was interested in Edward Mybridge and his work of, of documenting motion, very scientific approach. I was curious what else was going on in photography at the time. And I found out that around, the, uh, around that era, there was also the pictorialists, of in, and there was a body of them in California who were doing fascinating work with photography as an art. Uh, photography, it was the claim they had to make and uh, put forward that photography wasn't just a mechanical process, but something that could achieve the status of art. And they would write essays making these claims uh, and, and proving that art wasn't just a matter of setting up a camera and hitting a button. They would etch uh, negatives and paint on prints to achieve their effects. They would use soft focus lenses. They had a whole bunch of 
magic they could do. And the women photographers of the Bay Area in particular fascinated me. Uh, there's a photographer named Annie Brigman, who was one of the pioneers of photographing nudes, uh, nude women in nature. And she just led a fascinating life, very independent, strong-minded woman, eccentric. And she inspired the character of Karelia. I knew I wanted there to be a photographer in the book who was sort of a counterpoint to Arthur's more scientific documentary, very rigid way of photographing the world. And I made Karelia a pictorialist photographer whose vision is very different, very imaginative, very expressive, and as a, as a, as a counterpoint to Arthur. And Joseph is sort of torn between them. He appreciates both of them. He loves both of them. And they do not always get along or see eye to eye. Hmm. Um, You've mentioned Edward Mybridge, but he spells his name in a really weird way, like Ed Weird or something. Can you explain how he might have hired someone like an Arthur Kylander to help with his work? Yes, Edward Mybridge uh, is a fascinating character in his own right, and he did play with different spellings of his name throughout his career. I do not know. What, I don't know that anyone knows exactly why he chose these spellings. And he, when he was doing his pioneering work for uh, Governor Stanford, Governor Leland Stanford in the 1870s, trying to, some say, trying to settle a bet as to whether the all four feet of a horse were off the ground at the same time when a horse was in mid-trot. So he hired people to help him achieve this experiment. He had a horse run on a track that had wires uh, that the horse would stride against and break uh, at successive intervals, and then that would trigger a shutter for a different camera. So it was a long, long track, a long shed that was filled with cameras that would all go off at certain intervals. So he needed a lot of people to help him. Um, to develop these in those time in that era, you had to developing was a much more cumbersome process than it is today. So it seemed to make sense that Arthur would be might be one of these men who was hired by Edward Mybridge to help his work down in Palo Alto, and that he would become perhaps a little too obsessed with the idea of extending these experiments from motion to time. Yeah, Arthur is a difficult and unusual person. But was his character based on someone in particular? Really, Edward Mybridge himself was an inspirational figure for for Arthur. Um, and the book makes a point of mentioning that they do have some similars in their physical appearance as well. But there's something about Mybridge's obsessiveness. He just took hundreds and hundreds of images of people in animals in motion, all kinds of animals. Uh, not just horses, but dogs and birds, which, you know, photographing birds in motion is a lot more difficult because they don't necessarily fly where they you want them to. But he was dogged, uh, and he photographed women jumping into hay and uh, chronicling each successive stage of that or pouring water over another woman in a bathtub. Some of them are quite amusing when you look at them, but there's something about the obsessiveness of his urge to record just about any motion you could think of that I was really appealing, found really appealing. And so Arthur has that, that a similar level of obsessiveness. And uh, I love writing about characters who are obsessed, uh, sometimes to the exclusion of 
of their own good uh, and sometimes interfering with their own relationships with people. Mm-hmm, exactly. The tetrascope is described as Arthur's invention, but it, it had already existed in the world, right? Could you say more about it? As far as I know, there did not exist a tetrascope per se, but photographers have come up with various ways of extending the camera's reach. Uh, certainly, my reach's battery of cameras all lined up in a row was one way of photographing motion. Uh, a French photographer, Etienne Marais, came up with a sort of photographic gun that had a, a rotating uh, series of negatives that would uh, rotate into position to photograph motion. So I was intrigued by the inventiveness of these early photographers getting around the limitations of a single camera. And so I conceived of the Tetrascope as a, a camera that consists of four cameras, all uh, ranged at each point of the compass, so to speak. Um, so arranged in a, all facing towards the same point. So the subject standing at the middle would be photographed, at, could be photographed at once from all four sides. And that was my, my attempt of sort of thinking, how would you extend these technical innovations uh, to, to photograph an entire person at once? Almost three-dimensionally. Yes. Mm. Do the books and stories about Finnish mythology exist, or did you create them out of your imagination? Also, why is Joseph so moved and calmed by the strange and sometimes kind of violent stories? The Finnish Kalevala does exist. It was a wonderful text that I stumbled across fairly early in thinking about this book. It's um, I when I was trying to imagine what Joseph's heritage might be, I thought, well, I could make him Swedish-American. I'm, my family is, has Swedish-American origins. But since nothing was in the book was autobiographical, I thought, why not make it entirely non-autobiographical and uh, make him give him a Finnish background? Well, what do I know about Finland? The only thing I knew about Finland was Tove Janssen's wonderful Moomintrol books, which were no, of, of no help because they would occur after they weren't written at this period that I'm writing about. And the other was the name of a wizard, Wainamoinen, that I had come across as a child reading an encyclopedia of world myths and fairy tales and folk tales. So I typed Wainamoinen into Google, thinking, what am I going to find out? And it comes from the Kalevala a 19th century work of epic poetry that was put together by a man named Elias Lonrot, who went around recording oral folklore uh, over the Karelia region of Finland. And he put it together and created a sort of epic poem in the mid-1800s. And it's a very strange tale. It's, it's not like, it's not as heroic in some ways as, say, the Odyssey or the Iliad, where you have these great heroes battling or achieving great things. The uh, central figure is Wainamoinen, an ancient wizard who's born old, centuries old from the beginning, and uh, achieves some things, but mostly uh, has difficult romantic experiences as he tries to woo a wife and and fails. So there's a number of other characters who show up, but there's just a mournful, a mournful and realistic quality about this book, even as it is as told in a in a very strange 
kind of uh, dactyl language that uh, translates interestingly into, into English. So I, there's something so strange and dreamlike about this collection of folklore that I, I thought this would be also be a way to counterpoint Joseph's participation in this very rigid, you know, every day at the same time I'm photographed at 3 p.m. for the rest of my life. And on the other hand, you have this wild dream world that Guerrilla introduces him to, and that eventually becomes more of part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Joseph and his father meet Mr. Thomas Hallgarten of the Hallgarten Paper Company, who becomes Arthur's sponsor. Can you say more about him? Yes. When I was thinking about Arthur and his project, I thought of Mybridge and his patron, Governor Leland Stanford, uh, with whom he, who, without whom this his pioneering experiments would never have happened. But at the same time, Stanford and Mybridge had a falling out when Mybridge felt that Stanford wasn't crediting him properly for his work. And I was just so interested in that relationship between the, the artist and the patron, or the scientist and the patron. And so I wanted to give Arthur, his own patron, uh, and thought of a wealthy man who knew of Mybridge's work and was intrigued by Arthur's experiments in extending that and would become someone who would help fund Arthur's project so that it could become public. And yet uh, I wanted this relationship to also have the, the kind of fraught quality that can happen between an artist and a patron when one person has all the all the power in some ways, and the other has an interesting but possibly misguided idea. Yeah. Um, the pivotal event so far in Joseph's life at the age of 15 was the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Can you talk a bit about it? And also, would a Berkeley millionaire like Hallgarten have opened his home to wandering re- refugees? Yes, that was what fascinated me too, was just how much Berkeley and Oakland citizens and citizens of other Bay Area towns opened their doors to refugees from the earthquake. It struck at 5.12 a.m. on April 18th, 1906. So no one was up and about, which in some ways was good, but people ran out of their houses in their pajamas. in many cases, not knowing what went on, but they just their houses may have tilted, may have crumbled, may have been perfectly safe, but they felt that huge rumble and knew to get out onto the streets. Some of them were able to get back into their homes and gather up a few possessions, but in a panic, you don't know when the next Templar will strike. And many others, their houses burned uh, and they had to flee with nothing. So the plight of the people who were who went through the earthquake was extraordinary, and I was just moved by the generosity of people from from all walks of life uh, in the East Bay and elsewhere who took in sometimes family members, sometimes friends, sometimes total strangers, and uh, housed them in attics and basements and tents in the backyard um, uh, for in some cases for for months. And uh, there was one particular case in Oakland where the writer Herman Whitaker took in a bunch of his artist friends and they set up camps, tents in the his backyard and stayed there for months, uh, singing songs around the bonfire at night and inviting people like Jack London uh, and the writer 
Mary Austin to drop by. And I just thought, well, what a wild convivial atmosphere uh, that must have been. And yet also very vulnerable where when you've lost everything, you've lost maybe the art you've, you've painted, all, everything you've painted, everything you've written, and you are out among the stars, uh, not knowing where you're going to end up come fall or winter. Yeah, one month after the earthquake, the Hallgartens take some of the refugees to see Sarah Bernhardt, the great actress. Did she really come to perform in Berkeley? Yes, yes, that was a marvelous event that I just felt if I could find a way to work this, make this part of the story, I would love to, because she came to do a benefit concert at the Greek theater in Berkeley and uh, performing uh, Racine's Phaedra, uh, a tragedy in its own right. And it just meant so much to people to have this famous actress performing in front of them. She was just at the height of her powers. And but she just spoke a, in French. She did it. Yes. <laughs> yes. But she was she was quite vivid. She was so charismatic that even if you didn't understand French, you could understand what was going on. And I found descriptions of the performance in Sunset Magazine. There was a really great write-up of someone who attended. And just just seeing people after all that, the horrors of the quake to settle in and be to watch this spellbinding performance. Uh, it must have been awesome to be there. Some of the refugees begin performing parts of the Finnish stories we were talking about for other for the other refugees. Can you speak about how that was transformational for Joseph? Joseph grew up being photographed, so he was very proud, especially as a child, to be the center of his father's project and to feel like he was going to be part of a great contribution, just as Mybridge's photographs of motion were a great contribution to the world. And he, as he gets toward his teenage years, he does start to ha have some doubts as to the value of his projects, his father's project. So he's also very drawn to Karelia's more imaginative take, her, her dramatic stagings that she photographs in the pictorialist style. And after the earthquake, when he ends up in a uh, camp in the backyard of the Hall Gardens with some other artists and an actor, he shares the Kalevala with them. And the actor, uh, Nicholas Forrester, uh, gets the idea of performing some tales from the Kalevala just to take their minds off of everything. And I was inspired by, by Bernhardt's performance, and they are too. So they're inspired to put on these plays that they sometimes improvise and sometimes write out uh, based on the Kalevala and other myths which was something that Berkeley residents liked to do in general, I found, that there were a number of them who would stage amateur performances, sometimes based on Greek myths. Uh, in fact, the photographer Annie Brigman, who I mentioned earlier, played uh, the role of the Sybil in a play written by a Berkeley poet named Charles Keeler. So I was fascinated by the, the mingling of the arts, the way a photographer might be an actor in an amateur play, the way artists uh, came together with other forms of, of uh, for with performers and photographers. So the plays were a way to, for me to bring together that creative energy, that wildness, and the dreamlike quality of myth. Uh, as a, and, and for Joseph, it's just a blossoming because it is a way for him to be at the center of something uh, or be have, a, have an important role in performing, uh, but not for the camera, but it's expressing something of his own soul in the 
characters that he plays. Yeah. Nicholas, the, the refugee who had been an actor, says at some point he says something like, the camera will never be able to show us the soul. What's your take on that? I was thinking of the debate at that time as to whether the camera could be a work of art. And Karelia argues that it can be, that it, that she uses not only the way she frames the images and the images she chooses and the events she stages for them, but also the manipulation in the dark room that she really has at her hand all the tools that a, a painter would have and that she's conveying something of her vision uh, as she sees it. And that, I see that as the soul that we can put in, that the artist, just as a painter, looks at a person he's painting a portrait of and can has some sense of that person's soul and put that into paint and canvas, uh, so too the photographer can really capture the essence of a person or a landscape uh, and their own personal reaction to that. So I think in some ways it's, you're not just capturing the soul of the person, but you're capturing your own soul as an artist, whatever medium you're using. You're chronicling the meeting of souls in a way. Also, I want to know your take on this. Joseph tells his father that acting like photography is about rebelling against time. Do you agree with that? I think one of the reasons I love writing is that it feels to me like rebelling against time in that I write a scene and I think, no, that's that's not quite right. I'm going to rewrite it. I'm going to change what this character said. I'm going to bring in this character. I'm going to set it in a different room. I just love, because in real life, whatever you say is said, you can't take it back. Uh, you, you can try to go forward from that, uh, but... You can't, re- you can't rewind time. So writing is a way to do that. And I think acting is too. You rehearse, uh, you perform night after night, and you think, well, last night I, you know, I muffed that scene. I didn't quite get at the heart of that that character was trying to do. So tonight I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to try this. And I'd, I just love that aspect of being able to do things over that is possible with certain forms of art. So I do think that that acting and writing and other forms of art are a way to to get outside of, of time's uh, deadly recording. Hmm. Let's add music. Okay. What do you think? Sure. Okay. So tell me this. What are you working on next? I'm working on a novel based on a Greek myth because... In the process of writing this and interacting with the Kalevala, the myths of the of Finland, I just I've always loved myth, and I really wanted to work with a story that had been told many times, um, but not really lived or inhabited. What is it like to actually have been some of these characters? What would it have been like if if the events, if some kind of sequence of events? gave rise to those myths, what would they have been? So that's what I'm working on now. I, I won't say which myth just yet, but uh, I'm just fascinated by the by the wildness, the dreamlike quality of many myths and how they speak to the truths of the life we live in our daily contemporary lives. Oh, it sounds fascinating. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to talk about this with you, and I, I'm really interested to hear it. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is GP Gottlieb.
author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series, and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author Ron Nyron about his debut novel, The Book of Lost Light. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a really good book today and tomorrow, too. Happy reading.